0: Bibles and I hope that you do join me in turning to the book of Philippians chapter number four Philippians chapter number four in our home for the holiday series we have been dealing for the past few weeks with issues related to how we interact with those around us specifically considering how we interact with friends and family during the holiday season but as it pertains to the passage before us this morning how we interact with one another as a body And even within a passage specifically dealing with the body of Christ, there are principles for application even outside of that context. We have dealt with virtues which are, in my estimation, near the heart of the gospel and near the heart of our God. For instance, we've given consideration as to how we can love even when those about us may conduct themselves in quite unlovable ways. We were reminded of the teaching of our Savior Jesus who said, You'll have love for one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Just a week ago we gave consideration to the virtue of forgiveness. It is a blessed thing to be forgiven by the God of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the many products of that in our experience is that we are to forgive even as Christ has forgiven us. Again, these are virtues near the heart of God. This morning's passage deals with the virtue of reconciliation, a close cousin to the virtue of forgiveness. Often the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a minister of reconciliation. What he intends foremost in that description is that his message, the message of the gospel, is about reconciling sinful men to a holy God through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what is foremost intended by the idea of having a ministry of reconciliation. But even beyond that, we are to work, we are to labor toward the end that reconciliation might be enjoyed within the body and among brothers and even between the church and the world around us in so much as is possible. Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul addresses a situation within the church wherein conflict has arisen. And provides us with some insight as to how resolution might perhaps be found. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 9 will be our text. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4 and verse 1. Listen to what God's word says. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you, die and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Here in Philippians chapter 4, we've come to that section of the letter where the final exhortations begin. You are perhaps accustomed to 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 the experience of coming to the end of the letter in Paul's writings. And in the end of the letter, Paul often will sort of in rapid form provide a series of commandments or directives for the church which can't receive the same discussion or detail as the previous recommendations or commands of the letter, but which are, by his estimation under the Spirit, important to the life of the church. You might be inclined to see verses 1 through 9 as three separate and altogether different sections. You may see verses 1 through 3 as one section or paragraph, verses 4 through 7 as one section or paragraph, and then verses 8 and 9 as their own section or paragraph. But there's a theme that holds these three sections together. It is the theme of peace. The product, the outworking of the commandments that are issued in each of these three sections is the enjoyment of peace by the fellowship, peace as an individual, and the protections against an unsettled spirit or contention and conflict even within the body in the future. I want us to look at those three sections individually in the time we have before us. In my estimation, and I think this is clear enough, Paul describes for us in verses 1-3 through the role of the fellowship in resolving conflict. Look to verse number 1. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for my joy and crown. The tone of the apostle shifts from chapter 3 even to the beginning of chapter 4. Where chapter 3 is fairly forceful, where it is sermonic in tone and there are very clear directives being issued to the church. Paul here begins chapter 4 by coming close, by endearing himself, by speaking of the church in such tender terms. My brothers dearly loved and longed for my joy and my crown. He continues in verse 1, noting, In this manner you are to stand firm in the Lord, and references them again here as, Dear friends, this is a shift from the language of chapter 3, a reminder of the close connection, even kinship, that exists between the Apostle Paul and those members of the body that are the church at Philippi. In verse number 2, he speaks specifically to the issue at hand. I urge you die, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Two ladies in the church with an apparent point of disagreement. Conflict has arisen. Even from the, the beginnings of the church at Philippi, ladies played an incredibly important role in the growth and development of that church. You may remember in Philippians chapter 16, as Paul received the Macedonian call, he came over to Philippi. And among the first people he encountered was a group of Jews worshiping in a riverside worship service. Paul preached the gospel there, and among his converts was a lady named Lydia, described there as a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Church historians and church tradition teaches that all of the church in Eastern Europe can be traced back to the home of Lydia a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, that single woman in her determination to revel in the grace of God for her through Jesus Christ and to see the world around her know that same grace impacted a continent through her faithfulness. It is an understatement to say that ladies were a significant part of the growth of the church in Philippi and the advancement of the kingdom in Macedonia and the region about them. Here are two such ladies mentioned Udiah and Syntyche. And I think it's worth noting that verse 3 describes them as partners in the gospel, a title that Paul uses again and again in the letter to the church at Philippi here in Philippians to describe those who have been at his side as co-laborers, serious about the business of kingdom advancement. Paul speaks with greater certainty about the salvation of these women and virtually anyone else in any letter. He says in verse 3, their names are in the book of life. Paul doesn't speak with this level of certainty about his own salvation, and yet he assigns this description to Udiah and Syntyche. It is helpful for us to observe that just because conflict arises between members of the body, that does not discount either party's ability to contribute in substantial ways to the advancement of the kingdom. I was called upon to provide some counsel uh, for a church recently, in in recent months, a, a church that had experienced conflict and a church that eventually experienced a split. What became apparent to me in the beginnings of those conversations was that either party had already begun to view the other as an enemy, no longer as a brother, no longer as a contributing force for the advancement of the kingdom, but as an enemy to the gospel and an enemy to their party and an enemy to their agenda or cause. Once you've made that transition in your mind, once that shift has taken place, the likelihood of seeing reconciliation result out of that conflict is really, really low. Paul is careful to note that in spite of the disagreement that exists between Udai and Syntyche, these ladies remain partners in the gospel. Their names are written in the book of life. Verse 3 calls upon the church specifically to be an aid in helping these lady to fi- ladies to find agreement in the Lord. Yes, in verse 2, he urges you die in Syntyche to find a point of agreement in the Lord. But he goes on in verse 3 to exhort the church that they are to be aids in assistance to finding reconciliation. He says in verse 3, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. There is a way, subtle ways, in fact, that the church can position themselves around those experiencing conflict or discord within the body that lends itself to reconciliation, reconciliation. And there are ways that those within the body may position themselves around those experiencing conflict that can further contribute to the festering growth of the conflict and discord itself. In our sinfulness, there are times when we take a certain glib delight in the drippy gossip we might hear in cornered conversations. And in the sinfulness of our hearts, there are times when we might take a certain glib delight in the demise or the fall of those we have perhaps at times been at odds with. That's what it means to position yourself such that you're throwing logs on the fire of conflict rather than working together as a body to alleviate the presence of that discord. There is, on the other hand, a way that you can position yourself so as to douse the flames of discord and to encourage the outcome of reconciliation. When rather than taking that glib grin of delight that someone has experienced, some shortcomings, some fall, some conflict, some unfortunate outcome. Our face takes the posture, the position. We give the expression of compassion and mercy and sadness that our hearts are genuinely moved at this unfortunate turn of events. When we take not delight in hearing that nice bit of drippy gossip, but our hearts are moved that some hindrance, some obstacle might be in place of the advancement of the kingdom, we have thereby positioned ourselves as encouragers toward reconciliation, no longer throwing gas on the fires of conflict. Paul urges these women to reconcile, but understand that he at the same time urges the church to help them to reconcile. Specific to the body of Christ is this example, but it has application beyond this. We're thinking in terms of home for the holidays and our interactions with friends and with family. That same posture can be helpful within your gathering or some harm has been done, some offense has been committed, your response to that as a party directly involved or just indirectly involved, as a friend or relative of the involved party, can either contribute to the festering of this conflict or to its alleviation in reconciliation. The expressions that you offer, your concern, either sincere or that Glib, satanic, hellish interest in knowing about something or delighting in someone else's demise can contribute to or squelch altogether the fires of conflict. Both of these women have been useful to the kingdom. They have been true partners in the gospel. So the desired outcome is to see this conflict put to rest, arms locked once again to see the kingdom of Jesus advanced among the nations. Verses one through three. Help us to understand something of the role of the fellowship in resolving this conflict. The the idea here is that when the conflict arises within the body, and the broader application is that within our friend groups and in the workplace and within our families, when the conflict arises, the goal is not to establish sides in the disagreement, not to come alongside as warring parties, but to come alongside as encouragers toward the outcome of reconciliation to the glory of our Savior. Here, the, the fellowship's responsibilities are communicated, but in verses four through seven, the individual's responsib- responsibility in alleviating conflict is described. Look at verses four through seven. The Bible says here, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is probably one of the most popular verses in the book of Philippians, in part because it's short and it's memorable. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, almost always lifted out of its context just to say we as Christian folk are to be rejoicing, glad-hearted, thanksgiving people. And indeed, that is the case. But notice how all of these virtues described in verses 4 through 7 are drawn together in verse number 7. We are to rejoice, we are to show graciousness to everyone, we are to not worry, we are to make our needs known to God and rely on his timely provision in order that, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now we use that verse, we quote that verse often, especially in the context of, of grief and sadness and lost, may the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, rule over our hearts, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But it seems that what Paul is describing in these few verses is that we are activating the peace granted through salvation when we rejoice, show grace, rest in Christ, and pray for provision. In other words, the product of Of our adhering to the commands Paul makes in verses 4 through 6 is the outcome described in verse 7. The peace of God rules in our hearts. Look at verse 5. Not only are we to rejoice, and again rejoice, we are to let our graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. In other words, there's going to come a time when we give an account for our graciousness toward those around us. The Lord is near. Show graciousness to everyone. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Rather than wringing your hands or being overly burdened, unduly burdened about things over which you have no control, bring those needs before God. Entrust them to his care. The outworking, the product of our rejoicing heart. A heart that is vigilant in its reflection on the goodness of God toward us through his son Jesus. He has saved us when we deserved it not. The outworking of our graciousness toward others. Even when that graciousness is not well met. The outworking of our ability to bring our worries, our anxieties before God. Is that the peace of God which surpasses every thought. Guards the human heart. Keeps our minds in Christ Jesus. If if you wish to alleviate your participation, your contribution to conflict, rejoice, show grace, don't worry, make your needs known to God, and rest confidently in the peace that passes all understanding. Verses 8 and 9 help us to have a sort of perspective that can insulate us against conflict. We've talked for the past couple of weeks about how our posture toward the world, our kindness, our love, our tenderness and compassion can be a means of distinguishing us from the world around us. And indeed, that is the case. Our culture at the present hour is bent in this hellish way toward being perpetually offended. We have entire generations now characterized by their ability to be offended by virtually anything that happens around them or to them or maybe just indirect of them in any shape, form, or fashion. How do we guard against that? How do we protect against being that perpetually offended party? Verses 8 and 9 help. Finally, brothers, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul simply says, focus on, meditate on the praiseworthy things. Now, this is not by design, but I observed this week in giving consideration to this passage as the third piece in this Home for the Holidays puzzle, that every passage we have dealt with thus far deals with a person's attitude, it deals with our outlook. One of the chief ways that you can alleviate being that perpetually offended person is by carrying a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like perspective into every situation, sometimes it's, it's an almost guaranteed outcome that disruption, that conflict, that discord will come just given the attitudes of those involved when they encounter one another. Here Paul says, have a Christ-like attitude, meditate on the good and praiseworthy things. Now in some ways, the culture is seeking to co-opt something of the principle of this passage. We're constantly being coached to be people of good energy and good vibes, whatever it is that that means. But I want you to know that that is merely a rip-off, a co-opting of Christian terminology, a biblical principle that is as old as time. Meditate on the good and the praiseworthy things. And this has an ability to shift our perspective and shape our outlook, even when we experience things that may not be to our greatest advantage or what we had hoped or expected for. This is a close kin in principle to some of what we sought to say last week in discussing forgiveness or its counterpart, unforgiveness. I have lived a good part of my life in close proximity to one who struggled a great deal with bitterness or unforgiveness. And I watched the ways that it played tricks on his mind for more than 40 years. My home church pastor used to say, you know, when you're given to bitterness, when you can remember the sights and the sounds, the clothes the person was wearing, their statement verbatim, when you can remember the weather, when that event that offended you unfolded, that kind of fixation is a guarantee that bitterness has begun to set up and fester in one's heart. And indeed, that was the case for the one so close to me. He, he would talk about events that had happened in his life nearly 60 years prior to that conversation, and he could vividly remember them and communicate every detail of that episode that had hurt him so deeply. I, I watched as it played other tricks and manipulated his mind in other ways. You could have a conversation with him on Monday that ended in a quite pleasant manner. And by Wednesday of that week, he had reworked that conversation in his mind so many times and in so many ways that he had found what he believed to be just cause in being greatly offended at some subtle thing that was stated in that conversation, whether it was truly stated or not. This is the end result. This is is the product of you allowing that your mind meditate on those things that are detrimental to your ability to rejoice in the things of Jesus. You see this play itself out in all kinds of ways. It is an altogether unhealthy thing that you give your mind over to the 24-hour news cycle and the constant barrage of reasons. You should be fearful. You should be angry while we're circling the drain and no good can come. You ought to rather, the Bible says, meditate on the good and praiseworthy things. Paul says again in verse eight, whatever is true, that's always a good place to start, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, If there is any moral excellence, if there's any praise, dwell on these things. Meditate on the goodness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, how He bled in our place, how He died on the cross, how He rose again, how He abides by the Spirit of God in our heart, how He's providing for our every need, how every good and perfect gift is from above, how in Him there's no change or variation, no shadow of turning, how He provides for all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, how He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother remember he will never leave us nor forsake us as followers of jesus as those who have been bought by the blood of the lamb we far too much to glory in to give all of our thoughts over to the dreadful things unfolding around us paul says meditate on the good and the praiseworthy things dwell on these things The bottom line is, and the principle that perhaps in some ways undergirds what Paul's described here, is that if you're looking for something to be upset about, you are always going to find it. There's always a good reason for offendedness, but rather than meditating on the multitude of reasons to grieve, to be sad, to be offended, focus on the praiseworthy things, look for reasons to rejoice. Paul says in verse 9, Do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. It is that as we meditate on the things of God, the good and the praiseworthy things, that that there's a drawing near. and The Bible promises that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We're at that place in the book of Philippians where doctrine dances, as we've made reference over the past few weeks. Where the theological foundations laid in the early part of the book begin to express themselves in very real, practical ways. Here, Paul is calling on us to look beyond The interpersonal relationships we may experience in this life toward what awaits us in Christ. Meditating on the good things, looking beyond opportunity to be hurt or offended in some way. He does the same in chapter 3 in sort of a different way, in a different corner of our life. Reminding us that the end product of our life is not retirement or ease or comfort or perhaps what we've always looked or had ambitions for. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're looking beyond this temporary experience to the reward that awaits us in Christ Jesus. And all of this is predicated on what is, in essence, the Christmas story describing the mind and attitude of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. We're back to this attitude issue. Paul says in chapter 2 and verse number 5, perhaps the most eloquent powerful, beautiful theological explanation of the Christmas event we have in all of the New Testament. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he'd come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The result of this, as a, as a product of this humiliation, Jesus incurs. God has given him. The name which is above every name. He has exalted him above all else that on the last day, those in heaven and on earth would bow the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. In doing so, not only has Jesus won our salvation, he's provided the pattern for us in interacting with all those around us called upon us to carry this kind of humility, this kind of mercy, this kind of compassion, this kind of grace toward others, to bear that out in our experience, to love as he is loved with a humility patterned after his own. When it comes to being offended at the root of that, in every instance is the notion that we somehow deserve better than we've received in the moment. Here we have the only example in human history of one who truly deserved better than he received. And he embraced it. Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the agonies and indignity of life in the here and now. The agony of the cross. Aren't you glad for what Christ has done for us? Can't you see, brothers and sisters, the power of that example established here for us Listen, I'm not suggesting to you this morning as we sort of draw to an end that that every difference is going to result in the outcome of reconciliation. Here is a sharp disagreement between two faithful ladies, Udai and Syntyche. But I am saying to you that within the body of Christ, every set of irreconcilable differences ought to result in the outcome of reconciled brothers and sisters who can once again agree in the Lord, locking arms to see the kingdom of Jesus advanced. Outside of the body, there can be no guarantees that conflict will result in reconciliation. Even when you do everything within your power, there can be no guarantees there. But in so much as it's up to you, You ought to see as best you can that the end result is reconciliation. That the message of reconciliation might sound forth. That God has loved us so much that in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our foolishness, in spite of the bad decisions that we've made, in spite of our sin, in spite of our addictions, in spite of where we've come from, in spite of the people that we've hurt along the way, in spite of all the things we've done, who we are, and where we came from. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Do you know that kind of forgiveness? When you do, you'll find an ease about granting that kind of forgiveness to those who offend you in the most severe of ways. It is a powerful thing to come under the forgiveness of God. All of us, believers and unbelievers alike, Know the experience, the sensation of having done something we wished somehow we could undo. All of that and more has been afforded us by faith in Jesus through the blood of the only begotten Son of God. I'll add to that, it's a pretty powerful thing. There's weight to finding a supernatural ability to do what we cannot naturally do in forgiving others even as Christ has forgiven us carry that kind of posture to the family gathering to the get together at work with those that you've had discord and conflict with you be salt and light perhaps that effort your posture wearing jesus on your sleeve as opposed to your feelings just might be a means of god advancing his kingdom in some very difficult areas let's go to him in prayer father thank you for your word and for its truth Thank you for what you've afforded us in your son, Jesus. Thank you for what you have done for us in inhabiting our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We do ask that you would help us to do supernaturally what simply is not naturally possible to us. We ask that you would make our mind and attitude that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself in ways that exceed our understanding, Pray that you would help us to be a people who are ever rejoicing, glad at what you've done for us, God, through your son, Jesus. Grant us a capacity for showing grace to all of those around us, whether they be within the body or outside the body of Christ. Help us to be a people marked by graciousness. Help us, Lord, in seasons of anxiety and turmoil to bring our requests before you and to leave them with confidence under your control. God, I pray that you would, as we do these things, be pleased to draw near in granting a peace that passes all understanding. In The next moment of our service, Lord, as we have occasion to respond to the reading and preaching of your word, I would ask that you would seek and save the lost. God, that you would convict and reprove, rebuke, and correct. God, where we've contributed to conflict, I pray that you would grant conviction Help us to do all that is within our power to seek reconciliation. God, as we do, that you grant us favor with all men. Lord, we ask that you would work in these ways to the glory of Jesus' name, for his praise and his praise alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.